Ditch and Bites. Welcome to another episode of Back in the Trend. I am your host, Eduardo da Costa, and we are going to explore, to do an archaeology of Gus Casey Hayford's life and times as a curator and director. The reason why I wanted to speak to Gus Casey Hayford is because, well, Africa 05, the Lost Kingdoms of Africa, do I need to go on? He's one of the most prolific custodians of African history, both in the UK and also stateside. He's been one of the inaugural directors of the Museum of African American Life in Washington, D.C., amongst other accolades. Gus Casey Hayford is also going to be the inaugural director of VNA East Bank, one of the most interesting and promising museological reimaginings, or as he puts it, going back to the roots, the founding documents, the founding imaginary of the VNA's principal starter. Hence, this discussion focuses on, as you would imagine, his trajectory. We unearth elements of his thinking in relation to his identity, in relation to collective identities, specifically African as it's his speciality. Sometimes the saying you have to be twice as good is not enough. Sometimes you have to remember you have to be three times as good or just plain old exceptional, which is maybe what Gus is trying to very humbly say in order to survive the emotional travails of the art world and to rise to a position of such, let's call it prosperity. One must go through a lot of trials of fire. Was we discuss it, vibrations. Enjoy this episode. Do reach out and let me know what you think. It is always important to understand how the audience is receiving this project on my Instagram, on whatever other platform you wish to do so. Welcome to Back in the Trend, Gus Casey Hayford. I think you might be the final one for this season. I've been very much looking forward to our conversation, learning more about your eyes, learning more about your sort of, let's say, aspirations for your new baby. In terms of DNA East, the reason why I've asked you to come on was because the sheer range of things you've done previously. I'm a greedy person, but I also like to share at the same time. I'm monopolizing your time to, how can I put it, get to know your story, see what I can learn from it, and at the same time have others learn with me. I know in the arts, nothing ever is completely transferable, but Bucking the Trend is all about understanding the different things that are available within our, the different career choices that are available within our ecosystem. So let's start with a bit of an archaeology and start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm a Londoner, and I feel very much a Londoner. I was born in in South London in a place called um, Tooting, which, um, if you if you don't know, London is um, it's a place which has um, had a bit of a sort of 
meteoric rise, but when I was born there, it wasn't absolutely wasn't either trendy nor kind of were the property prices kind of anywhere near where they are at the moment. It felt very far away from things. And it was a great place to work, to grow up as I think probably pre-10, you kind of have this sense of being part of a of a community, living kind of in a place that felt incredibly kind of safe. I grew up in a family that were incredibly loving and my siblings very supportive of me. And it did feel in those initial years pretty idyllic, actually. So um, I look back on that as a kind of a reservoir of positive memories that I draw upon a lot. It was a time in which not just as a family that we were very close, but also just the way in which the world felt like it was changing as well around us. It did kind of offer a sense of, of, of hope and opportunity. With that hope and opportunity, what is your background? This is my study at home. Behind me is the corner of an Asafo flag. And my parents who came here in the 1950s, my mother was Sierra Leonean and my father Ghanaian. And my father was born in a place called Cape Coast, which is a town on the coast of what is today Ghana, but was in the colonial period, the Gold Coast. And it produced a huge amount of gold that was produced in the interior area of the Asante. My father grew up in the coastal area, which is um, incredibly beautiful. I've been there a number of times. And along the coast are a range of castles, which um, became trading posts for the, the, the Europeans. And around these trading posts, groups of locals who were affiliated to the British and would occasionally sort of fight um, on their side created these military companies called Asafo companies, and they produced amazing tradition of flags so that when they were on the military battlefield, that they could be identified. And very often they would have a union flag in the corner, as you would with lots of sort of military um, flags. Um, But the actual main body of the flag would be dedicated to telling amazing kinds of stories from indigenous history they might be used for proverbs but whatever they depicted was usually depicted with incredible beauty and with a kind of level of vividness that made these things very very impactful and beautiful and i just fell in love with them and um seen them kind of being flown along that bit of the fancy coast over much of my early career and have had the great honour to um, be given a couple. And, um, you know, this one hangs in my study um, and another one um, in, in my bedroom. Let's get stories about your education because it's quite an interesting topic. I enjoy the way in which you weaved in the story of your background, your literal background and, and your background. That was, um, that was hilarious. I thought you were going to skip through that and go to somewhere completely different. <laughs> My education, I have a PhD. I, I studied in Britain, went away to school, began actually at a comprehensive in South London, but was always kind of, was always sort of invested academically, even though I didn't necessarily do as well as I would have liked, possibly as well as my parents might have liked. But I was always very determined, went on, got a scholarship to a small private school, 
in Dorset, and then from there went on to university, studied fine art, and then philosophy, and did a PhD at SOAS. And then from there, went on to the British Museum, presented programmes like the South Bank Show, which I, I did one on African art, really got a taste for the popularising of history, particularly histories of Africa. Growing up in South London, I wanted to try to find stories that reflected my own ancestry and couldn't. They weren't in the history books that I was given, at least. They weren't in the lessons that I was taught at school. And so I had to look elsewhere for 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 them. And, you know, very luckily I had in my kind of aunts who would come and visit, in my parents, um, amazing stories of our African heritage. And so as soon as I could travel, I traveled and traveled in not just in West Africa, but around the world, just through Central and Eastern Europe, through the Middle East, through South and Central America and Asia, just really kind of trying to gain a wider understanding of cultural history and cultural diversity in its complexities. And um, just kind of fell in love with arts and the material culture as they were lived, not just as they sat in museums, but as people celebrated and lived their own cultures in everyday life. That was the thing that I really kind of fell in love with. And so for me, I wanted in my own career to empower people or to give people kind of back their their histories so that they didn't just feel like they that history was something that sat in in books or that you know that that you kind of pushed your nose up against cases in museums to try and get close to but how could history be made real through narrative through objects how could we actually bring those stories back to life through really sort of empowering people through um through connectivity and so i then sort of began to think about how could i work in museums in a way that might offer me the chance to both have access to those collections but also to try to connect those collections to new to new audiences to different kinds of people not just to continue to to deliver a similar program and to see the same sorts of people come and enjoy them so I, I and and so my work in museums was always about diversity of program diversity of audiences um and thinking about the ways in which kind of partnerships and deeper broader engagement might transform the sorts of stories that museums could tell and so even working at the british museum that was my aim and so i i one of the first big projects that I delivered was something called Africa 05 in 2005, in which I managed to get um, 150 organisations right across Britain. This was institutions from the BBC to Channel 4 to all of the major London-based national museums to deliver programme to celebrate Africa. And what I was trying to get to is a, a kind of critical mass in terms of programmatic activity to a point where everyone would be aware of it and to both give confidence to the sorts of people who might not traditionally attend, but also confidence to the institution that they should be programming more, more Africa-focused material. And it was, it was a success as a, as a program in that more people attended than were expected. The programs were really well, um, uh, reviewed 
um, they it, it changed the sort of atmosphere and the ambition of of many of the institutions that were involved in relation to how they might program diversity. And after I finished that, I went on to do a, a law fellowship, and it really began my career in terms of rather than just being um, someone who had temporary contracts who be working just on sort of very partial contracts, I, I suddenly kind of found myself in a place where I was actually beginning by mainstream organizations to be sought out to begin to deliver substantive programs. And so that was that was quite a powerful kind of moment of transition for me. And soon after that, I actually found my very first full-time uncontracted job as a director because I had a PhD, huge amount of experience of working in educational departments and supporting and consulting for many museums over years. And in fact, I'd actually sat on boards of national museums up to that point, but not had a full-time role. And then at that point, after having delivered that major program, I took up a role as the director of Innova, the Institute of International Visual Arts. And that was and that was something which was good for me, for my confidence, and to gain a huge amount of experience of how, of the complexities of running an arts institution, of all of the different sorts of pulls on, a, on your time, of how much energy it takes. And it was really very, very good for me. And in the course of that time, I also kind of realised that I wanted to keep my hand in with television, with radio, so I continued to broadcast. And I would go from that to a number of other roles of leading small and medium-scale institutions, went on to become the um, executive director of art strategy at the Arts Council, trying to sort of reshape and recalibrate arts funding in England and Wales to try to diversify that sector, did a whole range of television, and then went on to run the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art. And then from there, came back to Britain to run the Victorian Albert Museum East, a completely new proposition, building a new museum and collection centre in East London. I have quite a lot of admiration for the progress that you that you've made in in your your sort of career because especially in the last section with the East Band project as the way that I got into let's just say the art was via the programs that were sort of put in place prior to the Portrait Olympia. So I was part of things like there was a small organisation called the Architecture Crew, and it was the UK's only architecture centre for, for young people, um, and and all sorts of other things, which led me to kind of shadow the main board of the East Bank project, or let's just call it a more wider name, which is the Olympic Park. So I have quite a lot of interest in in, in seeing how how that plays out, but that's just me digressing. The question I'd like to ask you in all of these sort of roles that you've taken up, did you at any point have any mentorship or were you the sort that sort of had an, an idea and just went with it and kind of associatively applied for things? I have applied for, I mean, I have gone for things. And I mean, the thing about kind of being a minority ethnic professional in the arts is that you may well be qualified for things, but whether they're open to you is a different matter. And so I have spent a lot of my career going for things and not getting them. 
And I've had to take a very circuitous to where I am. And so I have, within the arts, not just worked as a curator, um, but done a whole range of things from consultancy to writing to television. Um, I've constantly sort of had to kind of refocus my ambitions to try to find my way around all manner of different obstacles. And um, that has actually probably been beneficial to me over the longer arc of my career in that I've gained experience of working in learning and education departments, in fundraising as, you know, in, in terms of presentation, doing all the communication roles, and then kind of, of course, in the curatorial areas as well, lots and lots of writing. So I've done all of those different things. So when I eventually found myself in a director role that I could talk to all of the people that I line managed from a position of genuine experience. What has been a kind of a quite difficult and circuitous route has actually stood me in quite good stead as I've kind of found some of the roles that um, uh, in the latter half of my my career. But nevertheless, the the stress of that has had an impact. I mean, just the just the kind of the, the knowledge of knowing that there were positions and opportunities that were being denied you is, you know, has been kind of a great, a great kind of frustration to me for a lot of my career. And watching particularly over the course of the last probably four or five years, those obstacles, that opposition begin to give way to erode to shift has been a relief but at the same time when you've held your breath for a long period and you then breathe out there is damage that is done from all of that and the kind of the emotional kind of trauma of all of that kind of both rejection and denial over a long period of my career. I think that there is a kind of a lag in the way that all of the impacts of that have played out subsequently. And you have to find the spaces and the ways of dealing with that kind of quietly. And that that is a kind of a consequence of being an ethnic minority professional within the art. And that because we, the arts remains so mon monocultural that finding the people with whom you can share some of that is actually quite difficult. And a lot of the time that, you know, the sorts of people who you imagine are going to be sort of, you know, liberal and understanding, that come the actual point where you begin to sort of talk about some of that damage which is done, which has been done and the ways in which you've navigated it, you, re you recognise that the actual kind of the profundity and the complexity of what one has goes through as a minority ethnic person in the arts is something which is very, very difficult to convey to someone who is not of colour. I mean, it's just very, very difficult. I always cite it as being akin to that if you are particularly, if you're a kind of black person in the arts, it's like constantly hearing a high-pitched sound that lots of, most other people cannot hear. And it is constantly not just present, but annoying to the point of being undermining and when you are tired when you are perhaps feeling a little bit sort of depressed it becomes something which is impossible to shut out and it's only very few people who aren't of color who can actually kind of tune into it and for people who can't it's not that they can't tune into it they find it impossible to actually even imagine it 
So finding the language to talk about how one might take away some of those barriers that are invisible to people is very difficult because you can build the structures in, you can create the schemes and all of those things, but the ambient culture within which all of this is most profoundly and palpably present will remain. And it's that, I think, is the thing that can really only be impacted when we can tune the ears of the majority to a greater level of sensitivity to understand what it might be like to be in a minority. I would like to just say thank you for for being so honest and candid about those experiences because it's not easy speaking so candidly sometimes about those sorts of uh, high-pitched sounds, as, as we're going to call it from now on. Art is fundamentally a relational subject. I think we've got through most of the kind of setting questions. Art is fundamentally a relational field or subject or whatever you want to call it. It is relational. And your description is kind of based on the fact that a lot of the time you have to kind of press the flesh. And in a way, one ends up doing a million and one widened participation program. As you said, I've done a million and one of them. And I've started my own projects because I found that a lot more rewarding. Let's just put it that way. The question I wanted to ask you, going back to the anecdotes you, you kind of made earlier on with the wide breadth of stories regarding history, regarding your background and regarding your motivation. What do you see the role of history as being? I mean, history is the denominator in any kind of personal fraction. We might kind of have a sense of who we are, but we sit firmly upon our history. It's the thing that anchors us. It's the foundation. It's the thing that gives us a sense of context and bearing. And so I would see it as the denominator to our numerator. We might well change and become something, but our history is that underpinning thing against which we will judge that change and what we might become. And so I think for people, particularly of colour, for whom colonialism empire has been part of our heritage, that that sense of history being shaped by others, of other voices actually being in the kind of the ambient tone for how we actually think about our past, that can be incredibly alienating. And to find both the strength, but also to then uncover the narratives that actually speak to us and who we are in ways that are meaningful is both difficult, but when you can do it, it is very empowering. And I do see it as a sort of an emotional systematic emotional damage of disconnecting people from their history. And if you think about sort of colonialism and enslavement, that they were processes that weren't just about economics, they were also about culture, about controlling narrative and about disconnecting people from their histories. And very powerfully, palpably, I think now, one of the things that I would prioritise for myself and for my daughter is that sense of investment in those narratives to give yourself the kind of intellectual, cultural underpinning that makes sense of you on your own terms, rather than as an other, as defined by someone else. 
And it shouldn't be a privilege to do that, but it can feel like that in in this country because we do not give people the tools, not in terms of education, very rarely in terms of museums or in terms of television. We don't give people the tools to actually see themselves either reflected or realised in terms of historical narrative. So I, I see history is important and with it comes a kind of inner stillness and confidence, a knowledge both of what upon which you might kind of base your future, but that fundamental sense of where you have come from, of where your roots are and how deep they might be. And those things, they're important. They're important when you're young and you're you're wanting to push back against some of those things. They're important in middle age when you're sort of, you know, grappling with with trying to sort of truly make something of yourself. And they're important in older age when you do a lot of looking back and also to a degree thinking about what the future might hold and the legacies you might leave. You do want to place it into a historical context. So history is everything. And it's the thing that people are most cruelly denied, that when, you know, right-wing governments, they want to to do damage to minorities. It is by trying to confer a constraint around history. You know, that Hegel very kind of confidently, he said, you know, that Africa was the place, you know, without culture and without history, knowing that this would create a kind of opportunity for developing a hierarchy of humanity that would lead either or at least contribute to the sorts of intellectual processes that would allow for eugenics and colonialism and, you know, a whole range of different sorts of appalling racisms that um, we, the legacies of which we still continue to, to live with. And so history is important emotionally, but it's also important politically. And we need both consciously and also spiritually to, to hold on to it because it is the thing that our, on our enemies will kind of attach onto the idea that certain people don't have culture. But it is also the thing that our children will seek from us as a kind of solace of knowing that it is there when times are tough. I think that history, it's critical to who we are and who we might be. And it's kind of a strange irony that, you know, to look forward, that you have to know where you've come from. Looking forward and looking back is an important precept of history, especially material history. If you think yes. about the Angelo um, Nobis um, and that Benjaminian conception of history being wreckage upon wreckage upon wreckage, one can sort of deduct an idea that because history has been sedimentary in its nature, because it has been so painful to watch, because no one no one thinks that a, a shipwreck is a benign or a yeah a benign sort of thing to have happened to them. Let's go back a little bit because you mentioned uh, in in your beginning speech a little bit about how the documentary that you series that you had on the BBC was quite important to you, and I remember. It also being something that I watched um, when it first came out, because I was thinking there's always all of these programs on the BBC about the great empires of everywhere apart from Africa, even less Oceania and also 
the Americas, you know, those um, those civilizations, as, as I should call them, because they were not all empires, but those, those civilizations were always sort of like sidelined. A question I want to ask is, in ideating for a new style of museum, a new, a new conception of telling history, how does one begin to find strategies to both bring people onto the same page as you, but also not alienate whilst doing that? Because you speak very passionately about it, and I, I just want to know that. It might be indulgent, but I've tried my best to to talk about histories in terms of personal biographies, to find the figures within within stories who seem to be a sort of a distillation of a period, who seem to, in some way, personify particular epochs or moments. And I find that to be really powerful. So, you know, a figure like Mansa Musa, that you can, from a medieval life, that you can tell a story not just of a single man, but of the relationships between Africa, the Middle East, Europe, you can tell the story of trade, you can tell the story of gold and exchange, and you could of religion, of the rise of a kind of of an intellectual class and the way in which kind of impact Islam helped to um, carry this new sort of moment of 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 intellectual awakening beyond beyond the continent. It's kind of thrilling, but you can tell those stories really powerfully in ways that impact you personally through the lives of a single human being. And the fact that they they lived more than a millennium before us doesn't, it just only helps to make those stories feel all the more powerful because they feel so relevant still. I've always tried to use biography as a mechanism for drawing people in. And sometimes it's my own stories, of stories of of working in kind of, you know, archaeological sites or in museums and as a way of talking to people about process. But then so often when I'm telling people about actual kind of historical narrative, I will turn to the lives of people who generally who I admire as a way of conveying how we can all kind of make real contributions. But it starts, it starts with something that is kind of personal. It's not you know, someone deciding that they want to sort of, you know, conquer a nation, that they want to transform a discipline. It starts with something, you know, which is quite usually quite modest and quite small and intimate. And I, th- I think that's how one can make history feel really relevant to people is by making it feel personal and making it feel on a scale that feels attainable. Yes. Oh, personal and the structural uh, are two ways that you sort of massage or manipulate the telling of narratives. Do you not think that sometimes the great man theory of history can be limiting? Because usually the people that come down to us are great men. And there are great women as well. But I, but I think for people of African descent that we've been denied our great men, as well. So I think it's important, you know, <laughs> that you give kind of young people a sense of people who look like them, who may have suffered some of the limitations that they have in their own lives and have 
gone on to make some kind of a contribution. And to be frank, because racism is so pervasive that I, I think, irrespective of gender, that I think it's important that we put those figures forward. But I think there are amazing, great women within across the whole passage of our history that we should be concentrating. And I try my best to make sure that I do. And in the work that I do presently, that most of the figures that I work with, particularly the contemporary ones, are women, that they are women makers who are museum, many of them, who will be focusing on. Amazing. Let's get on to that, actually. I remember a long time ago, not really long a few years ago, when, when the, the East Bank project was was a mere twinkle on most people's eyes. There was a whole question surrounding whether or not the museum itself should be completely, how can I put it, completely new, you know, a, a blank slate in, in essence, in opposition to something like how the Tate has, Tate Modern, which has become its new, younger, sexist self, and, you know, the, those polarity. How does one speak with a unified voice when your brief is a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more, dare I say it, interesting. <laughs> um, well, but the, I mean, one of the interesting thing about the National Museum Project in our nation is that most national museums begin as really, truly radical forces. The British Museum, it was set up in the 1750s and its founding brief was to speak to all curious and studious people. And in that statement, the, the truly telling word is all, that it was in a period within which society was incredibly stratified by race, by gender, by class, by all. But this was an institution that was set up for Britain and for Britain that was actually only coming into being in that period in the way that we understand it now. But it, set, it was set up to be something that was broad and wide and universal in its remit or in its desire to be accessible. The Victorian Albert Museum set up, or at least initially set up 100 years later in the, the 19th century. It was a, it's a proposition that was always seen through its founder's ambition of wanting to speak to a broad spectrum of people. So it's the first museum of its kind to have gaslight so that people could come in the evenings after work, ordinary people, not just the sort of, you know, the, the middle classes who were kind of wanting to sort of, you know, to wander around galleries. This was about working people who were using these spaces very often as a way to enhance skills, possibly for pleasure, but this was a different kind of proposition. This was about actually empowering people to transform their own lives. So the, the V&A is also the first space to have open, accessible libraries that are open in the evening as well. This was again about empowering. So museums, so many of them, began as radical forces that they were about transforming people and collections and our nation. And so... For me, in trying to craft a new bit of the V&A, I haven't had to be kind of radical or drastic or do something that has felt outlandish. All I've tried to do is to reinvest in those primary founding aims and ambitions as they were actually articulated and deliver them in ways that feel in the 21st century 
to be appropriate. And we can deliver them in ways that, that feel actually kind of much more dynamic. So the idea of being for all students and curious peoples, but you know that not everyone could come in 1750 to the British Museum because it would have just been basically impossible. But we can, in the 21st century, using digital tools, we can create environments in which we can engage far more of our populations, both in the pleasures of what we do, but also in using our spaces and our collections to enskill themselves, to potentially transform their lives and their professional prospects. For me, even though we are part of an institution that is, what, 180 years old, I feel that there is something very radical at the heart of 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 the kind of the foundation of most museums. And within that sort of radical, um, but also simultaneously timeless drive to be inclusive, I think we can craft a vision for the future that looks and, and respects the past. Wow. So much to chew on there, especially when we think about the way in which we are still grappling with those legacies of these museums to an extent. We're still trying to now live up to the founding documents. It's funny how something radical can become so very conservative <laughs> in a very short period of time, um, especially when our interpretations of radicality is sometimes mediated by the impulse to self-protect to an extent. But I would like to go back in order to go forward. We were discussing a little bit about Hegel and his conception of history. In the last few minutes, do you want to speak about some of the texts, you know, some of the oral stories, anything like that, that have impacted you and have given colour to your life? But on one of my first trips, I mean, we began by kind of talking about the flag that's behind me. And on one of my very first trips, that traveling in Ghana and um, going to one of these amazing flag festivals, and that many of the flags there, the very oldest flags, are made from silks. And these silk, and I, I'm, I'm sure you know that silk, it has this potential to turn into, it almost crystallize, to turn into something that can, can fracture, almost shatter like glass. And so a lot of these flags that were made from silks, that they've begun to become incredibly fragile. And rather than just place them in drawers, fold them away, rather than put them behind glass as I have done, the, the people have continued to use them, to use them and repair them and see them as being part of an ongoing narrative that history story that it has to be living and those for me are the kinds or the the, the form of history that has inspired me most of a memory of standing on the beach and cape coast in one of these flag festivals with a man dancing with one of these yellow flags and they dance them and the flags flex in the wind and because of their age, tiny fragments of thread slowly 
unravel from the main body of the flag. And if you stand downwind from these flags, you know, many of them are kind of in gorgeous colours of orange and gold and blues. And if you stand downwind, you will become covered in just tiny little threads, flexes and threads that have been slowly kind of unraveled from these flags as they've flexed and torn in the wind. And I've always seen that as being a kind of corporeal, a physical instantiation of the history itself, slowly unraveled, of the people having the confidence to understand that their histories needed to be fluid and live, that they would constantly be adding to these histories, repairing these histories, but also they would not be scared to interrogate these histories, to go out there and to fly these flags and to see them flex and be torn in the wind and then to unravel and become part of the world that made them. And so I've always seen that as being a kind of a glorious metaphor for the most powerful histories, of histories that could go out there in the world and they could be oral and they might be written, but they would be live and they would be dynamic and they would be told and they would be argued and they would be deconstructed and turned upside down and constantly in flux and flow, constantly unraveling and being remade and loved. And through that love being demonstrated that they are alive. And even though probably no single part of these stories, of these fabrics that they began with would remain over the course of the whole life of this thing. There was, there's a kind of underpinning continuity through the dynamic of them being alive and being used. And for me, that is the most powerful thing of history is that they need to be used, to be loved, to be vulnerable, to be able to stand up to the interrogation of time and of people who disagree, of people who want to change and and shift thinking, but also to be invested in with people who will sit and they will do the repairing work of looking back over time and reinvesting in narrative and making sure that the integrity of the story itself remains. And so those are the kinds of histories that I've been impacted by. And I feel the sorts of stories that I write or the sorts of programs that I present They stand on the back as repairs, as little additions, as patches that sit on this wider, gorgeous, flowing fabric across time. And I see my role as being a small one, but just trying to contribute to our kind of wider understanding, our wider repair of those fragile, but fluid, but critical narratives of the past. Wow. With that, I would like to ask you for any pearls of wisdom. Do you have any pearls of wisdom for any up-and-coming curators who may fancy themselves as being the next (laughs) ellipses? I'm not going to say it, but the next ellipses. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I would say, and it's the thing I, you know, I try and say to myself as well, occasionally, is uh, have a good time. (laughs) You you can both be stuck looking down at the very moment that you're living in and working hard and getting feeling down about some of the challenges. And then you can also have your eye fixed on some distant goal and forget about some of the sort of immediate things. But both of those sorts of levels of focus have a vulnerability and that is 
that you can actually forget to be truly present, to think about the blessings, the the wonderful things, the great relationships, the the pleasures, the things you enjoy, and going out and actually not just consciously doing those things, but as you do them, remembering, thinking, trying to contextualize those pleasures and actually being very present in those moments. And I think that is very important because sometimes I kind of, you know, I look back and I think somehow I got very old. Somehow I did a whole (laughs) load of stuff. Somehow, you know, I did a lot of the things that I had dreamt that I would do. But a lot of the time I was just sort of looking forward, just sort of sprinting. I wasn't actually kind of thinking about all of the wonderful things that I was encountering and experiencing. And I just think it's important to live in the present and to enjoy those moments and to congratulate the people that you love when they're doing wonderful things and to appreciate the people who you're close to and to tell them that you do so. Those are the things that when you're down, when things go really seriously wrong, It's that subtle stuff that really matters. It's not the big stuff. Looking back across my career, it's those moments when the people who really loved me, they said that they were proud or they hugged me or made me feel good about myself. Those were the moments that I look back with with pleasure. So all I would say is go and hug someone you love. Tell them why. Remember the things that give you pleasure. Perhaps write them down in a book and then reread them every now and then. But just have a way of recording the things that are good about life because, you know, they can slip away. Wow, Gus, thank you so very much for your time. So, Trenton, Gus Casey-Hayford was very candid with us during the course of his interview, and I had to thank him at a certain point because it would be very easy to come on and be very much guarded but it goes to show that the issue of representation and what it is to be a minority within a majoritarian culture but a global majority member with a history to protect and to reaffirm and moreover to rescue is a task that we sometimes may think it's someone else's task but it's all of our tasks in a way so during the course of the conversation we spoke about key spots in time in which Gus found himself facing certain challenges and overcoming them and we also digressed into discussions surrounding history and his own narrative in that in order to make this archaeology this uncovering of Gus's story as authentic as possible in his own words. This will be the final installment of the Bucking the Trend. I like to call them Trend Buckers. I don't know if everyone else calls them that. But this is the final installment of interviews with London BIPOC directors. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I hope for the next episode to be joined by a special guest or even to conduct it myself 
where we will dig into the series again and look at some of the highlights and some of the questions raised by the exposition of our trend records. Once again, I would like to thank everyone who's taken part in this season and especially Gus for having been our last participant but not our least participant.